I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast that showcases the talents of the IISSS analysts. And I am delighted that we have with us today Dr. Francesca Grandi, who is the editor of the Armed Conflict Survey, one of the major publications of the Institute, which is just about to come out in the 2019 edition. And it draws on the enormous database, the armed conflict, uh, armed conflict data, and selectively chooses what the most interesting and relevant issues are for the year. We're going to talk about that a little bit with Francesca Grande, who holds a PhD from Yale, is also educated at the University of Milan, the University of Bremen, did her graduate work at SAIS. She has written powerfully on issues of um, displaced persons in Syria, on extrajudicial uh, killings in post-World War II Italy, and in general, uh, her work focuses a lot on issues of post-conflict justice and stabilization. Dr. Grandi, thank you so much. Thank you, Corey, for having me here. It's a pleasure. So as listeners of this podcast know, in order to give a sense of continuity, we ask our folks the same questions uh, going on. And the first, of course, Francesca, is what about your work is timely and in the news right now? Uh, so the, I'm following, I'm, I do different things um, uh, at the IISS, as you know. Uh, one of the things I do is the editor of the Armed Conflict Survey, as you mentioned. Um, uh, other things I do within the program of conflict security and development uh, is to analyze a specific situations. So I focus on Central Africa. So I follow the situation in Central African Republic and Cameroon. And lately both... Uh, Countries have been in the news quite often, and maybe I would like to focus on Central African Republic um, now, because um, very recently, in February 2019, a peace agreement was signed between the government and 14 of the major um, armed groups uh, who have been fighting since 2013. Another reason why um, Central African Republic has been in the news lately is because um, it's becoming a country uh, in which, uh, like some others in Africa, uh, especially in the Horn, but also in the Middle East, uh, Russia is starting to uh, make uh, uh, its uh, presence and influence felt. And it might sound a bit awkward that uh, a, a country relatively unknown, like Central African Republic, would be picked uh, by um, yeah. a great power. And, but it's, um, we're, we're definitely observing uh, great power dynamics uh, unfolding uh, in Central African Republic as well. I can go a bit more in... What actually are the Russians doing there? Uh, so uh, they do um, a few things. Uh, they signed with the government in August 2018 uh, an agreement for military cooperation. Uh, that entails uh, training of uh, soldiers in the Central African uh, Republic, uh, but also um, providing a personal uh, security detail for the president. They mm. also been involved in the mediation process that led to the peace agreement that we saw signed in February. Uh, and this in itself was a complicated process because um, 
other powers, France, for example, which is you know the traditional uh, uh, foreign uh, partner in Central African Republic because it's the foreign, uh, it's the former, sorry, uh, colonial power, uh, started to see this as a little bit of, a, of an invasion of, of its. Uh, but it sounds like Russia's playing a constructive role. If well, they were helping negotiate the peace, if they're providing personal security for the president, d- is that an accurate read? It's a, it's a mix, of course, of, uh, okay. of both. Definitely, um, uh, there are people who would agree with that. And uh, um, uh, I agree as well. Uh, there has been a constructive role because... Um, um, so the, the fuzz was about the fact that there was a, um, a long-standing process to try to mediate peace, which was um, led by the African Union. Um, and Russia, together with Sudan, started a somewhat parallel process that was not really recognized within the fold of the ongoing process. But then eventually it finally sort of converged in the same process, and so we arrived to the signing of the agreement, which was definitely a positive outcome. And and tell me how the peace is settling in in the well, Central African Republic. Of course, Republic. as you know, uh, once you sign a, a peace agreement, uh, that is really just a start. Uh, and so, uh, devil is in the details, and the implementation uh, phase is always a major challenge. And the peace agreement um, is uh, comprehensive, at least in language. Uh, so it provides. Um, a basis for um, uh, for implementation that, that could be solid. Uh, the problem is, of course, is that not necessarily all the conditions are in place on the ground. And by that, I mean that uh, there has been quite a lot of um, compromise going into, into this agreement. For example, um, there is very strong popular demand for justice in Central African Republic and uh, uh, armed groups uh, um, fighting the government that signed the peace agreement have been very adamant throughout the process that they wanted amnesty included the agreement. Well, uh, the president, of course, had to play a very uh, difficult balancing act between these opposing uh, uh, demands, and um, I think the peace agreement manages to do that because it does um, mention that amnesty will not be uh, tolerated, uh, but at the same time, it doesn't quite provide for very specifics on how to impede that uh, amnesty would prevail. So it, it kind of, it, it does accommodate uh, both sides in a way. What are the other potential stumbling blocks to the peace taking hold? Amnesty is the big one. What else should we be looking at uh, as leading indicators of whether the situation is stabilizing or destabilizing. Absolutely. So uh, one very important one, which is uh, uh, one of the points on which the UN, which has a presence uh, in Central African Republic uh, in the form of a peacekeeping um, mission, a stabilis- uh, stabilization mission called MINUSCA, uh, is that the state has actually little control over the country. So the, the, the state doesn't quite extend much outside the capital, Bangui. The rest of the territory in uh, Central African Republic is um, under the control of different armed groups. This control shifts, so there, there are patterns to this control, but uh, they're not stable, and so we, it's very, it's, the situation is quite unpredictable in the sense that it's not always clear 
uh, to understand who is in control of which area. Another complicating factor is that the Central African Republic has many conflicts going on at the same time. So the peace agreement addresses one of these conflicts, which is um, the conflict between the government and some armed groups. But it doesn't uh, necessarily address uh, issues that are much more localized. So for example, in Central African Republic, there are many very localized militias which um, uh, self-portray as uh, self-defense militia, but what they actually end up doing is victimizing civilians, uh, taxing um, commercial routes. Uh. So we shouldn't expect the peace agreement to actually bring an end to violence given the prevalence of these localized conflicts, but that it may uh, disentangle the violence that's going on between the government and some of the more widespread armed groups and clarify and maybe even extend government control. Absolutely, that's a, that's a great summary. So it definitely provides a basis. And this is, uh, as you know, this is how you make peace, right? You, 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 you go one step at a time. So definitely the peace agreement is a, is a, is a step in the right direction. Um, but many other things need to, to be put in place uh, in order to, to achieve it. And so certainly violence will not disappear completely because there are so many other sources. And here we, we, we go back to the Russia presence in the country because uh, um, Russians are also providing military training. So that is part of the idea of rebuilding the state and try to... Um, create a sufficiently solid security sector so that it can expand control. In fact, it sounds a lot like what the United States and Western allies believe we are doing in Afghanistan and in Iraq, building Absolutely. partner capacity of a legitimate government to control the territory. Absolutely. How did you get interested in this it's kind of work, Virginia? Um, so I, when I was 19, I... Uh, worked in a refugee camp in uh, in, the, in, ex in the former Yugoslavia. Is that right, Francesca? How, <laughs> how how did you come to do that? By chance, like many things that when you are a teenager, right? And so I, um, my mom was involved uh, in with volunteering, organizing uh, donations, uh, and so I helped her out a bit. And then uh, one day she told me, well, you know, there is a group who is going because they need people working there over the summer. Would you be interested? I was like, sure. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I went. <laughs> and it was a, a, a fantastically... How old were you at this time? 19 years 19? old. Uh -huh. Fantastically eye-opening experience. I, I really, you know, you, you... I had followed what was happening next door because I'm Italian. Um, so in the Balkans over the between 1992 and 1995, but actually going there, uh, seeing people absolutely like us, it's I think it's very powerful in the in the psyche of a of, of, of a young person as well. Yeah, of course. So that sort of stayed there, and so it made me understand that that's what I wanted to do. The problem is that I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> 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 <So>. <laughs> There was some ideas, uh, like some confused ideas about um, operating at the international level because uh, clearly the understanding was that there were forces here at operating, that they were creating this situation, but at the same time trying to do something to help people. Yeah. 
And so my career from there is kind of a, a succession of, of trying to, to adjust these two components. It's sort of, um, it, but what is underlying both is the, the fact that you must understand the situation. Right. And so that was sort of, has driven pretty much everything more than anything else. So really like the, 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 the why thing, things happen, why people fight each other, why do they end up on opposing factions in a war? Why the war is sustained? Why violence is perpetrated against mm -hmm. civilians? Mm -hmm. So all these questions were, were in my mind. And um, yeah, I just, I just sort of <laughs> follow them through the different uh, <laughs> incarnations. Of that's, that's a really interesting description. Our next question, I feel like, uh, is a as we Americans would say, or people from the Dominican Republic, Japan, Korea, that is the baseball universe would say, that this next question has to be for you, a pitch slow over the middle of the plate, which <laughs> is, what is your favorite book in your field? <laughs> I was waiting for the baseball <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> so this is the hardest question by far. Um, I do have a long list. So what I decided to do is to uh, be a little bit sneaky and, and choose among the books uh, that... Uh, so narrow it down the choice. And so choose among the books that I edited. So that, that choice is very easy because <laughs> the first book I have edited is coming out um, this month. So we are uh, launching the Armed Conflict Survey on May 15th here at the IISS. Uh, so I, I think I, I will go with that one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And it, of course, uh, sets my heart aflutter that you think it's such excellent work. Uh, you Thank curated you. the topics. You tell us what's in the book. What did you? What issues drew your analytic attention? Talk us through it. Absolutely. So, well, the story is. Um, um, the vision for the book comes a little bit also with the story of how it came about because I, I just recently joined the institute and the book is, is very recent. Uh, so the institute has um, been soul-searching a little bit for the book and so uh, when I came in, uh, part of my job was also to, to, to forge a, a vision for it. And so uh, I'm trying to do that um, uh, by talking with colleagues and, and, and also drawing on my understanding of conflict studies, which is what I come from in, in uh, uh, my recent background in academia. Um, and so what uh, we decided to do was to uh, keep on with the format of having a report for each active conflict in the world. So uh, for 2018, because the, the book always refers to the, to the year just passed, uh, we have 33 conflicts. Uh, one of them is, is new with respect to the prior year. So uh, the, the Anglophone separatist conflict in Cameroon is the new addition uh, to this year edition. Um, so besides these 33 conflict reports, uh, we start the book with four essays that we commission to experts in the field. And we identify the topics uh, of these essays by looking at the dynamics we believe are driving conflicts around the world 
um, and are likely to become or to continue to be very important in doing that. Uh, so this year, uh, we decided to uh, have an essay on the um, complicated relationship between armed conflict and force displacement. Uh, one about the security implications of climate change. One on uh, um, the, the, the urban aspect of conflict. So what happens when a conflict arrives in a city? Or what um, um, role cities play in the unfolding of a conflict in a country? Uh, and last but not least, uh, we, we have um, um, an essay on uh, how humanitarian aid has, um, has entered the toolbox of, uh, of countries trying to um, uh, further their national interests. Let's talk about that one a little, because sure? it's not clear to me that that's a new phenomenon. No, it's true. Very, very true. Absolutely. So, so talk through what the why the essay, why you chose that topic, yeah. and what the essay explores about it. Uh, we chose that topic because um, two very very prominent conflicts in the past few years have been Yemen and Syria, and in these two conflicts. Uh, has become very clear that many of the parties involved have uh, manipulated the delivery of aid to hurt the other side. Uh, so, for example, uh, in Syria, um, the regime has, uh, has always attempted to impede the delivery of aid into areas which were controlled by the opposition so that it could add to the burden of living in areas that were loyal to the opposition, so sort of uh, and the idea of drying, drying the sea, sure. in a way. Um, and yet, that was true in the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, yeah. that was true in the Trojan War, so what makes this topical now? It makes it topical because um, we sort of arrived to a point in which um, we were um, uh, we were very proud of of where the um, humanitarian international humanitarian system had arrived in terms of setting norms and in in terms of recognizing that there were certain red lines that we could not cross and I believe that um, um, we we were hoping that certain um, uh, crossing of those lines would not happen because we have learned and we have, we have created a quite sophisticated system of um, delivery of aid, of humanitarianism, of the idea of protecting civilians in, in, uh, in armed conflict. Uh, and unfortunately, um, it's sort of, I think we, we had a, a quite shocking wake-up call to the fact that nothing really has changed as much as we hoped. And so I think is is topic because we do have the instruments not to go back and continue doing that uh, because we really have a very sophisticated and well-developed international humanitarian system. And so we can rely on that to fight back to um, trying to um, advance state interest and trump everything else. I think we do have the instruments today uh, to actually 
um, uh, promote uh, the protection of civilian in conflict much more than we had before. I'm deeply skeptical of that. <laughs> so I want you to talk me through what those tools are because um, it seems to me that as tragic as it is that civilians bear uh, burdens in mm. warfare, uh, armies don't fight wars, countries and societies fight wars, and that makes, in some sense, civilians part of the action. Uh, morally, if you think about the Confederacy and the American Civil War, mm -hmm. um, that uh, it seems to me a very recent phenomenon that civilians should be entirely hermetically protected against the consequences of war. And second of all, um, uh, it doesn't look the same to me as it looks to you that that the norm was widely established and acknowledged, mm -hmm. certainly not by states. And so it looks to me like we are relearning the lesson we learned with the UN intervention in Bosnia, which is that the humanitarian community would like to assert, and, and ethically I'm very much in favor of this, but I don't see it happening, uh, that civilians, that aid should not be a weapon of war. But for combatants, of course it is. If you break a siege, you are preventing the capitulation of your of a combatant. So what are the tools that are new? <laughs> so, well, uh, you said actually many things I, I, I agree with. Uh, the main one is that we continue relearning the same lessons. I very much agree with that, unfortunately. Uh, but I mean, if, you want, if we want to see it a bit more optimistically and then we look at the, the history of, of protection in, in conflict that comes out from the Battle of Solferino in the 19th century, uh, we have um, seen the development of instruments, legal instruments. Um, the Geneva Conventions are the most widely um, ratified um, uh, treaties uh, in the world. And so um, I believe there is, a, um, they, they, they uh, offer us a quite solid basis on which to fall back. Um, the idea at the core of uh, protection of civilians in, in, uh, in wartime is not that they are hermetically protected because there is definitely a recognition that that is unrealistic. Uh, but there is, th but the, the the crucial point there is the distinction of people who are actively involved in combat and people who are not. So mm -hmm. people who are not are protected under international law, mm -hmm. and this is a law that all states signed up to. So they are um, accountable for it. So this, uh, for example, is a type of instrument that the the international community can use because states voluntarily subscribe to those norms. And also through their practice, also very, very important, customary law uh, um, as established um, in many situations, uh, how protection of, of civilians should happen. For example, medical personnel, um, the, the, um, the members of the press. So many, many different people are 
uh, of this kind are protected under international law as well. Absolutely, and I understand that, but I struggle with what are the new tools, especially as we are watching uh, the white helmets be explicitly targeted in Syria, uh, the Syrian government and the Russian government. Uh, I hope to live to see a day where the perpetrators of those war crimes are brought to justice for it, but it just feels to me like we're a long way off from those tools being more effectively wielded than they had been wielded in the past. I want to move on to what the conventional wisdom is in your field that's wrong. Uh, well, there is a concept I would um, I would love to do without, okay. <laughs> which is uh, ethnic wars. Okay, interesting. Explain, please. Absolutely. So I think these two uh, words obfuscate much more than explain what we we are actually what they actually intend to explain. Okay. Um, for for two basic reasons. One is that they um, use the effect instead of the cause to explain something. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is that they, they um, de facto uh, deny a very important feature of an armed conflict, which is its dynamism. Mm -hmm. I'll explain. So uh, let me start with the second. Um, conflicts are by nature uh, multi-causal. Uh, and so both at different levels, so between the leadership or between the foot soldiers at, uh, at the local level, at the national level, different causes drive conflicts. So even mm -hmm. in the most ideological war, for example, you can have foot soldiers that actually fight because they're joining a group just because their um, childhood enemy is in the other group or because they subscribe to certain norms that the other group doesn't recognize, which don't have anything to do with the national level. So by just simplifying a, a confrontation as ascribing it to the belonging of different groups by traits is, is making away with all the other very complex phenomena that are ongoing at the same time. That sounds right to me. Uh, give some concrete examples. Oh, absolutely. So let's take the most ex extreme example. Let's take the Rwandan genocide. I was headed to Tutsi and Hutu. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so um, what happened is that um, in 1994, when the genocide happened, um, a civil war had just ended, and there was a, a peace agreement that was being trying to implement, mm -hmm. to be implemented. And um, the problem was that the government that was in place was a majority government of Hutus, who feared very much um, the remnants of the organized opposition that was starting to invade the country from outside. So this created a climate of fear. Mm -hmm. uh, which helped the very radical elements within this government to organize and mobilize people at the local level by convincing them that they were all fighting a common enemy. And this common enemy was uh, exemplified as being the Tutsi, so the different, the other. Uh, so ethnicity certainly worked as background to this mobilization, but what really mobilized people at the local level was intra-group 
uh, intimidation. So the many people joined because the uh, local leader was intimidating them into joining and into helping perpetrating the genocide. So it's not outward pressure from another ethnic group causing them to have uh, a more intense sense of their own ethnic identity. It's more like gang recruitment from within their own ethnic community. Absolutely, and this is a mechanism that you see in many different conflicts for very different reasons. And so ethnicity just becomes one of the organizing principles, but it's not the reason why people fight each other. I think that's a really important distinction, a really valuable one. Best work you think you've ever done? Uh, this is also a difficult one. Um, and I will go by... Please tell me you're going to talk about the book project you're about to start working on. It is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So that's why I, 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 there is the caveat. It's more about the input rather than the output. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I love it that your favorite work is the work you are commencing on. I think that's such a, a hopeful and enriching perspective, Francesca. Thank you. So I do have a draft, which is my dissertation project. <clears throat> which is about uh, violence that happens after a civil war has ended. And what I'm trying to do with the project is I identified um, a gap in the literature um, um, and also in our understanding more in general. So it's, uh, the book is not meant to be only for people who focus specifically on studying conflict but tries to reach a broader audience mm -hmm. uh, to create um, a conceptual framework that can help us identify different uh, scenarios in post-conflict. Uh, and from there, um, trying to understand which type of violence are more likely to emerge in each. And by scenario, I, I basically mean the combination between uh, the political and the military resolution of a war and how these combine. And so you know from, from many different countries that war can end in many different ways. So there can be a very uh, drastic and, and, and clear-cut military victory, uh, there can be a, a sort of a protracted uh, conflict that then becomes low-key, 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 and then sort of fizzle away, or, or maybe there is a, a peace agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, in those these cases, um, in, uh, the military resolution doesn't necessarily match the political resolution that sort of brings uh, society back into the fold. And so that's a, that's a separate and more complicated process if you want mm -hmm. and how these two combines create the the dynamics uh, of incentives and constraints to you to the use of violence very interesting and are you doing case studies that test the framework what are the case studies absolutely well i'll uh, i have a few case studies uh, most uh, uh, will be of contemporary um, uh, situations but uh, the one uh, I expanded the most in the dissertation mm. was uh, Italy in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, and I did that because uh, there is little uh, rigorous scholarship using archives over uh, that period. And uh, I thought it was a good opportunity to also learn more about my country. And I have to say I learned a great deal throughout. Mostly through American archives, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that American archives were useful. Uh, you published an article based on that chapter 
tell us where it's published and we will put a link to it with this audio. Absolutely, thank you. It's published in the Journal of Peace Research and it's, it was published in 2013. So it was the very beginning of my field work. Fantastic, last question. What is your favorite data visualization? Um, here as well, many. Uh, I picked uh, one on the Central African Republic just because I've uh, done uh, recent uh, work with it. Uh, and it's done by a research institute in Antwerp, uh, which um, it's called IPIS. Uh, they produce conflict mapping. So of course my data visualiza visualization had to do a map because I'm a humongous map nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, that's a very fine quality. <laughs> Thanks, uh, but also, there is also a theoretical re reason which is I think that uh, visualizing a conflict on a map is extremely helpful because if you think in terms of uh, what actors um, uh, control what, I think it, it it helps you understand many aspects of a conflict and how actors move on the territory. We can go on for hours on <laughs> this, but I'll stop here. I'll just uh, describe you very briefly the, the data visualization, which is uh, conflict mapping um, in the Central African Republic, and it's a study of roadblocks, and huh. which armed groups control which arm, uh, uh, roadblocks. It's fantastic. Excellent. We will post it, or at least a link to it, along with this audio. Um, Francesca, I want to tell you how very much I appreciate you giving us a sense of what is exciting about the new Armed Conflict Survey, which comes out May 15th, for you giving us a sense, me in particular, a richer sense of what the peace agreement that's recently been signed in the Central African Republic means, where, what role Russia played in it, uh, what, how thorny the issue of amnesty is in the peace agreement and how vague the language is. So that's one crucial area to watch uh, in order to try and keep the, the nascent peace from unraveling, but also uh, helping me understand how much localized conflict is not going to be addressed by the peace agreement and will need to have uh, continued mediation, continued confidence building and peace building measures. I, I also liked our argument about the tools of protecting civilians in warfare and loved your reminder that we tend in an effort to understand and simplify conflicts. We are ascribing to ethnicity something that is an effect, not a cause of those conflicts. I think that's a really powerful thing for all of us to not try so hard to simplify what's going on that we mistakenly uh, subordinate the actual dynamic of conflicts into easy but inaccurate ethnic terms. Francesca Grandi, thank you so much for the excellent work you do for the IISS, for your leadership of this year's Armed Conflict Survey, and for making your favorite work work to come. <laughs> thank you so much, Corey. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm.